I'm Mallory Wyckoff. This is In the Waves. Welcome, friends, to episode 10 of In the Waves. Today, I'm talking with my friend, Dr. Sarah Barton, through chapter 10, titled God is Hostess. I wanted to interview Sarah for this chapter because she and I did our doctoral work together. And so we have shared uh, our stories with one another, our lived experiences, and have quite a number of similarities between them, given our respective callings to preaching and teaching and various kinds of ministry in a world and in particular within traditions that do not welcome, that do not accept our being in those roles or functioning in those ways. In this chapter, I describe some of the really painful and frankly absurd experiences of what it's like to be a woman in ministry. Sarah has her own stories, as do the hundreds of women whose stories I've heard described to me about their experiences of what I think of as really stingy and unjust table practices in the world. And there are so many ways that we as individuals have experienced exclusion, we've been left out, that we are not welcome, there's not space or room for us. And why I talk about my experience as a woman in ministry is simply because this is really the primary way that I've experienced that exclusion. I live with a tremendous amount of privilege in in general sense, and this is one of the ways as a woman, and in particular as a woman who has been trained in theology and ministry, that I've experienced those kinds of exclusion. And so I wanted to write about my experience also of God as hostess, as one who continually shows up for me spreads out a beautiful table before me and reminds me I will always have a space at this table and not the one that actually matters. So in this chapter, I talk about encountering the God who is hostess, the ways that she hosts each of us, and in doing so is inviting us to extend hospitality to one another, to reject all stingy table practices to disrupt any table that is unjust and inequitable and to build a better world where there is a new kind of table spread for everybody. That is the kind of table that I need. That's the kind of table I want to be at. And I want to make sure that it's open and accessible for everyone. Sarah Barton is the university chaplain at Pepperdine University. She teaches preaching and ministry courses courses there. She's part of a preaching team at Camarillo Church of Christ in Camarillo, California. She's a peer reviewer for the ministry journal called Discernment. She wrote a memoir several years ago called A Woman Called that speaks to this conversation. And she holds a doctor of ministry in missional and spiritual formation, as well as other degrees and areas of training. Sarah is a dear friend and a delight. And I hope that whether you are a woman in ministry or not, that this conversation invites you to think about the ways that you've experienced exclusion or you have witnessed exclusion and scarcity, and also the ways that you have experienced God as hostess, who speaks a better word than all of those things. Friend, I am so glad to get to have this conversation with you today. Thank you for being here with me. As uh, as I've shared with some other folks, but it's equally true with you, as soon as I was thinking about this podcast in this particular chapter, and who would be the best conversation partner, you immediately came to mind. So I'm thrilled to get to talk with you about this idea of hospitality and of God being hostess. So welcome, friend. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this, just this treasured time to spend with you. 
I feel like I've been along the ride for this book Mm. as it was coming into being. And so now how great that I get to talk about one of the chapters with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You write one of the endorsements on the back. You are all over this. And I even name you, at least your first name in the chapter in the book uh, and, and kind of retell a story of yours. So it just feels right. I like being uh, included in stories about Charlie's Angels. Anytime, <laughs> anytime you want to talk about me and Charlie's Angels, you just go for it. <laughs> oh, do you identify with one of them in particular? When we played when we were kids, it, we fought over who got to be Farrah Fawcett. Okay. And um, rock, scissors, paper, whatever. <laughs> that was the desire. So I don't know if if she's still my identification with the Charlie's angels, but she definitely was when I was young. Yeah. She was the greatest Charlie's angel. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine there's somewhere on the internet, there's a whole slew of people who are battling out this conversation. Who was the greatest Charlie's angel? Mm -hmm. I don't know enough about Mm -hmm. it. I've heard about the Farrah Fawcett hair and seen the pictures. That's about the extent of my knowledge. For my generation, oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, she was impressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, Farah, thank you for being here and for being willing to have this uh, <laughs> have this conversation with me. Just I'm like been looking forward to it. Okay, so I want to talk about hospitality with you and this idea of God mm-hmm. as being hostess and how she's shown up in our lives mm-hmm. in that way and, and how we have shown up and reflected that God mm-hmm. as hostess. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to start with this question. Um, tell me about your earliest memories of hospitality and what what kind of tables, mm-hmm. literal and figurative, did you feel mm-hmm. welcome or unwelcome at? You know, um, as you know, I grew up on a farm and I grew up And I know for vegetarians, this is a little bit hard, but I grew up in a family that hunted, you know, deer, quail, pheasant, wild turkey, fish, I mean, all of it, hunting, fishing. And so there was a, and this is in Arkansas, in a rural county, and there was a group of hunters that came from Indiana, and they would come to Izzard County and hunt every year. It was a big, you know, exciting thing for them. And my parents got to know really these strangers, but they weren't strangers after years and years and years of their visits. So every time they would come, these men from up north would come to our house and my parents would put on these wild game dinners. And at the table, I was at the table with these men with their hunting coveralls, you know, these these orange vests and the smell of the outdoors and they were definitely the smoking the cigarette generation and they would be at our house and my mom would make biscuits and gravy and everybody everybody my family and the hunters they would say we'd be eating these this quail which I love to this day and they would say Sarah gets the quail legs So like chicken legs, but the legs of the quail and Mm. everybody would take things off of their plate and hand me the quail legs. So for whatever reason, everybody took care of me because that's Mm. what I liked. And I don't know, I was proud of my family's hospitality and the way we had these relationships. Um, One of the men was named Homer and we especially loved Homer So anyway, that Mm. like that table and the smells of it and the experience of it just lives in my memory as this reciprocal hospitality because they would bring in, you know, whatever it was that they hunted and we would all share it. And there weren't enough chairs at the table. Mm. You just I can remember just standing there almost with my chin at the table, but being included and being remembered what Sarah likes. Sweet. Yeah. I'm I'm imagining that image of you, as you said, kind of your your chin up to the table and these large burly men in their hunting uniforms. And yet Sarah gets the quail legs. That's really precious. I do. They were very (laughs) sweet to me. Even my, my parents still have that memory all these years later, they know how much that's what I liked. So being included, but also that reciprocal nature of hosting and being hosted. 
was really is a great memory for me. Yeah, and I love that example of everybody has something to give and everybody has something to mm-hmm. receive. That sense mm-hmm. of mutuality that you're describing mm-hmm. there. And the little children are seen and heard. Mm-hmm. You know, a little kid is seen and heard. And um, I felt very seen in those moments. Mm-hmm. So I know enough about you and our shared experience in life mm-hmm. to know that you've also experienced some really stingy table practices mm-hmm. and places mm-hmm. where you didn't feel seen or welcome or included and where maybe there weren't enough chairs because people chose for there not to be and they certainly weren't finding a place for, for mm-hmm. you to, to kind of come up to the table. And as I write about in this chapter, you know, this has really, this has taken so many even absurd forms in, in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I write about some mm-hmm. of those, right? And about who gets to do what within particular spaces and, and mm-hmm. particularly in religious spaces and, and in mm-hmm. my own church experiences, right? And who gets to lead what women are quote unquote allowed to do. And again, just the absurdities of well, you can be up there as long as you stay seated and the man is standing or you can talk. We have to call it a lesson. It can't be a certain, you know, we can go on and on. And I write about some of those absurdities mm-hmm. in the chapter, but I'm curious for you, what have these terribly stingy table practices within church cultures look like for you? What forms mm-hmm. have they taken? Yeah. Here's your book. And that part is underlined mm-hmm. and, and notes are there. Yes. Uh, this is my experience too. All of those things that you listed, people walking out, people actually speaking up and uh, speaking out women are to be silent while I was teaching or preaching mm-hmm. um, all those questions about where to stand, where to sit, what to wear. I mean, one of the ones that I remember so well is somebody wrote a blog about me and what I was doing when I was preaching. And and the quote in it was, there's no such creature as a woman preacher. And it, it was, well, you got to give it to him for rhyming, you right. know, but it was just like, what do you think I am a unicorn? I don't, I don't know. So, you know, and, and then I remember I was co-preaching with a man because, you know, women couldn't preach on their own. But for a time anyway, I was co-preaching. None of the situations worked out well in the end. But here we are on a stage and there were two stools up there. And when one of us was talking, the other would sit on a stool. So when I sat on the stool and he was preaching, that was okay but when he sat down and I was preaching, mm-hmm. that was was a problem for people because it, then it looked like I was usurping authority or something. And so I learned not only was it where I put my body and what I said or did, it was where the co-preacher put his body and his posture. That one surprised me. That one was, um, I don't know, neither one of us saw it coming and they had always had stools there when two men were preaching together and they took turns, but it became a thing. So these things are so odd, Mallory. I, Mm -hmm. and they're so painful. They're so painful. And I think here we are, here we are fussing over what women can do or not do. And we are standing there with the Lord's supper in our midst. Mm -hmm. We, you know, the Lord's supper where we literally act out hospitality, the broken body, of Jesus, the blood of Jesus poured out for us, this, this most hospitable and welcome act. And, you know, when we share in that supper, I believe we anticipated this banquet where everyone is welcome and there's, there's room for everybody. And of course our hospitality isn't perfect, you know, tiny little cups of juice and bread but we are trying and exclusion like that just cannot be a part of it. So, you know, I take the Lord's Supper every week and I, I want to take that table with me into my life and treat people and anticipate a great banquet. Um, so in my work and, you know, in ministry or in education, I, I want to take that hospitality with me. But mm. it's challenging when we don't start with room for everybody at the table. Yeah. And as you so rightly name, part of the confusion is that these theological practices, 
that orient us and ground us in this faith, in a tradition, in a spirituality are telling us one thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yet that moments later, we're experiencing something really different. And so Mm -hmm. this is part of what's so confusing because you have these, you have these experiences of this, this openness of a table, right? And, And certainly not, not all communities practice an open table, but we are at minimum told that this this meal is for everybody, right? That God mm-hmm. is extending mm-hmm. this meal to everybody. But actually, it's really meant for certain people to be able to express or to experience in particular mm-hmm. particular ways, depending on how they show up and in what body, mm-hmm. in what space, in what ways. And that's just terribly confusing for little kids as well as, you know, grown ass women like you and me to go, this just doesn't make sense. I Mm -hmm. I remember preaching a sermon a few years back that essentially saying, it's kind of this almost like open letter to these communities that had formed me to say, I'm literally walking the steps that you laid out for me Mm -hmm. and trying to take them seriously. The the ones that you told me, hey, engage scripture, right? Like Mm -hmm. take it seriously, attend Mm -hmm. to it, see what truth there is to see. And so I am. And then you're telling me, oh, nope, that's a dangerous reading, right? Mm-hmm. Or you mm-hmm. told me to believe that spirit dwells within and that I can access spirit and hear spirit's mm-hmm. voice. And so then when she calls me to be one who preaches and teaches and speaks, you tell me, oh, no, actually you're not hearing correctly mm-hmm. from God. And that mm-hmm. that is just, again, it's it's really confusing. It's terribly troubling and, and deeply painful like you mm-hmm. describe. And it ends up certainly in my experience and I would be willing to bet yours, you know, imagine that experience of you with the the stools on the stage. It's like mm-hmm. when that's what you're having to worry about, mm-hmm. you're not able to be as fully present to the experience. And then when people there in the community are worried about who's standing, who's sitting on what mm-hmm. stool, when we're missing all of it entirely. Mm-hmm. And what's actually mm-hmm. supposed to be happening here becomes secondary at best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that has been a painful part of it is is being welcomed into that learning experience, that preaching experience. I mean, you and I both were welcomed in many ways in our studies to use our voice. But when we took that and actually acted on it and did what we had been trained to do, we we were met with inhospitable situations. I do think something you mentioned is important. Sometimes someone wants to hear a woman preaching and see a woman leading, but it is very hard for them that they know everyone else doesn't want that. Mm. And that's just a broken part of uh, the situation that, you know, it it creates conflict, which is the last thing I want to do. I want to, I want to listen to and follow the leading God has in my life and the way the spirit is guiding me. So it's, Mm. it's been a challenge. Yeah, and what you describe of the, <clears throat> that, yes, this can stir up conflict and and difficulty within a community. I hate the way that that burden lands on mm-hmm. us in that mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. space and in that moment. Because actually, what's problematic is the unjust practice, is the inequity, right? Mm-hmm. But the way we experience it is that it's us. It's the fact that we're on stage with breasts, right? (laughs) Or we're on stage as embodied women and that we're the ones causing the problem. And even though, you know, we're we're intelligent humans and we can logically go, okay, that's not true, but like, but I feel like I'm, I'm the problem, Mm -hmm. right? Because everything seemed Mm -hmm. fine until I showed up and started speaking. Mm -hmm. And I hate that for us. I know, but you know, as we're saying that I can picture men and women, but you know, you're looking for male allies. And I can picture male allies who were hospitable mm-hmm. instead of stingy, like you talk about. And I can, you know, we have experiences like that too, mm-hmm. where we learn to see and notice these things that are welcoming. And so I've, I've, uh, I mean, you've probably seen it too, you know, eye contact is this huge this huge thing where someone will actually look you in the eye when they know who you are and what you want to do. So for me, a a male ally is someone and, and the hospitality of just eye contact Mm -hmm. is huge. Looking at me in a conversation when they know I have expertise 
instead of looking around at everyone else in the room first. That doesn't always happen, but when it does happen, the hospitality of that just just speaks so powerfully or, you know, believing me when I share experiences of sexism or them calling it out themselves and saying, I saw this issue. I, I remember one of my colleagues said, that was weird. We were in a room together and no one ever looked at you. They gave you no eye contact. They were looking at me the whole time. And he called that out and he said, I saw it. And I felt so welcomed into ministry in that moment. You know, I feel like I've experienced men who the fact that they do not follow the Billy Graham rule, (laughs) you know, like the Billy Graham rule is so inhospitable to women who women in all types of vocations. But in ministry, being told, no, I'll never meet alone with you to work on a project or to work on things in our ministry, that really decreases my effectiveness Mm -hmm. when I don't get the same kind of treatment as the other, that's the men in ministry do. So someone who doesn't follow the Billy Graham rule and actually trusts a conversation about ministry behind closed doors. I don't know that that is hospitable to me. You can probably think of more things that, you know, a male, you know, someone who doesn't ask my opinion. Well, what's your opinion as a woman? And they only want my opinion as a woman, but what's your opinion? You have studied this, you know about this, what's your opinion? So those kinds of things I think are the hospitable practices I have seen in the midst of the pain, um, the pain of it all. And, they stand out because it's more rare than I wish. Yeah. These examples that you describe, and I'm I'm so glad you named them because they, they are part of this larger equation and experience are, are those allies that, that do show up. Part of what that does for me is help. If I do begin to internalize the, the sexism and internalize these Mm -hmm. patriarchal norms and go, Oh wait, yeah, I'm I'm the problem here, right? I'm the one causing the stir. I'm creating the disruption. It's something wrong with me. I'm dangerous, right? My body is inherently mm-hmm. dangerous, etc. Then when a man does not respond in those ways and and uh, is much more of an ally in this because it's because he realizes that actually he's being in, harmed by the inequity, right? Just as I am, mm-hmm. right? That actually he's missing mm-hmm. out on our voices and and in our wisdom and experiences as, as women, that, that shifts me out of that place of what can too easily happen, which is that internalization of the inequities and, and the narratives that sustain them. I write about this a mm-hmm. bit in the, in the chapter, because to me, this is one of the most kind of insidious impacts of, of this kind of sexism. Mm-hmm. Um, so I write, I would love to say that I have an ear always attuned to this song, ready to name it for the counterfeit that it is, but too often I find myself humming along, internalizing the myths of scarcity and peering out from a front window like an overzealous neighbor, watching and waiting for any sign of threat to my property. At the same time that I weep and wail against the injustices of stingy tables where women can't find a seat, I look at these sisters as competition. When they're invited to speak at a conference Mm. or their gifts are praised, when they're promoted or signed to a book deal, I'm afraid it's one less bite for me. I'm so hungry for equitable, generous tables that I begin to believe the issue is a lack of resources rather than unjust systems ensuring only a few seats are available. Yeah, I like that section because it's so vulnerable on your part. Mm. You're very vulnerable. Mm. Well, right, because it, it feels more comfortable to talk about it in an external way to say, here are all the things that are wrong. And they are right here. are All the myths of scarcity that show up in our culture and that show up in our, in our church, just the same, if not more, and all that's true and real, but it takes another step to go and hear the ways that I am feasting on that same poisoned meal, right? Here's the ways that I'm mm-hmm. believing that and taking that into my body. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me yeah if and how you have experienced that similar sort of um, tendency to internalize all of this? Have you found yourself doing that? Yeah, Mallory, that's the part where I think you were very vulnerable to just admit what something that we don't really want to admit, you know, 
that we would have jealousies or things like that. And we do. And, and it, it is connected to these systems. I think for me, the internalized inequity or oppression, we might say that I have encountered the most or believed about myself and these things are all so personality related and so individual, you know, is that I'm not a strong leader unless I'm really self-sufficient, like, you know, unemotional, kind of a female version of John Wayne or something. (laughs) But I, I'm not like that. I tend to lead very collaboratively. I'm, I'm very good as a collaborative leader at identifying gifts in others and giving them opportunities and sharing space and men and women. I'm, I'm good at that, but there's this Head, this voice um, in my head that beats me up for that and says, to be a leader, I should take these opportunities for myself. I should be really more visible. Um, not, And it's not just a voice in my head, really. It's, I've been criticized for being too collaborative. It takes too long to get things done that way. It takes a lot of conversation to do things collaboratively and get many opinions maybe it's it's not decisive it's a weakness it's it's wishy-washy instead of taking your stand and i know we've both read willie james jennings book after whiteness and you know he says this is connected to white western approaches to authority mm-hmm. and that at least when it comes to theological education which is what that book addresses specifically and i work in theological education you know, I think that he's saying it's our challenge is we have to decolonize theological education. And, you know, all that feels really big to me. Mm-hmm. It's a huge challenge. But I do know that if we continue to promote ideals of leadership as this unhealthy, individualistic masculinity and self-sufficiency in our work, whatever our work is, it will remain fragmented. And I think that comes from internalized oppression about what a leader is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I try to think, well, instead, what if we can ho- host people with and cultivate profound belonging, which is at the heart of the Trinity, you know, this profound, mysterious, really belonging. What if our ministry, what if my theological work was a place where vulnerability and intimacy and embrace was healthy. And what kind of witness would that be to the world is my question. Um, so I don't know. I That's the internalized thing I see in myself is that I beat myself up for the very thing that I think is right, but I don't think others think it's the right way to be a leader. Does that make sense to you? Does that make sense to you? Yes, it absolutely does. And I'm sitting here thinking, God, I'm so thankful that Sarah leans into those very innate ways of leading that are both reflective of your particulars as an individual and are this a larger invitation to another way for all of us so that we can each show up with the particulars of our own embodiment and and training and sensibilities and so forth and, and lead alongside with you. Like it is that open, wide and hospitable invitation. And I get mad thinking about the, the pressures internally and externally that come up that would make mm-hmm. you, you know, question that make me question those sorts of decisions. You know, I remember I'm older than you, so I can remember when women who would become leaders in any sector would dress like a man wear the suit and look almost, you know, like a man. And that, that seems to have decreased in our society. At least it's not quite as prevalent, but I think it's a similar thing with leadership that Mm. we need to lead with these ways that we've seen it done. And it's difficult to do it. I don't know, not that only women lead collaboratively, but there is something about this. I don't know the way things have been done for so long because men have been leaders for so long. That makes it different. That makes it challenging. Um, Like right now I'm teaching a preaching course and I am seeking in that course to cultivate this radical belonging and communion and collaboration. My whole syllabus is designed around it as these five women and four men find their preaching voices Mm -hmm. 
I'm trying to trust my instincts uh, that my collaborative workshop style approach will result in them stepping into their preaching voices. And for me, that means hosting my classroom as hostess mm-hmm. with an invitation into preaching. But I start second guessing myself thinking I'm not lecturing enough. I'm, I'm workshopping too much or things like that. And, and that's not how I saw it done in the past, but I have to trust my instincts and, you know, it's working out great. I see just, I'm having so much fun as I see the successes of it, but that internalized, I have an internalized problem that I second guess myself on it a lot. Mm-hmm. I think what you highlight so well is this idea that what we actually want is not a more benevolent version of the same old way in the same old system. Mm-hmm. We don't mm-hmm. want a nicer patriarchy, right? Because you could say, mm-hmm. oh, here, I'll pull up a seat for you at this same table. I don't want a seat at that damn table because that table will continue to perpetuate harm, right? It is built on that type of colonizing impulse that you, you know, you, you rightly named earlier that Willie James Jennings talks about and that that ultimately is at root for everything that we're discussing. And so this isn't just, Hey, let's open the doors to, to the building a little bit wider, right? Or let's pull up a few more seats at the same existing table. It's actually calling into question the way we've structured all of it and rethinking all of it. And if we are serious about doing that, if we're serious about that kind of, frankly, just justice, right? Setting things right, that sort of rebuilding, it will require new approaches. It won't be that we can then revert to what always has been where there's only been a few acceptable ways, a few acceptable bodies, a few acceptable approaches, right? It will require the type of collaboration and inclusion that you are modeling. And I'm thankful that you're, you continue to do that and persist in that even when the voices internal and external seek to impinge on that because yes, that, that is, that just happens and it's, it's enormously challenging but you see a different way and you're inviting us to, to live into that. Yeah. I do find people who resist, but I find, cause I work with a lot of young people. I find that young people are really inspired by it. They are, they see, and maybe they don't name it and put their finger on it, but they, they see and feel something about that inclusion, even if they're younger than I am, and they just got out of school, and they just started at a job, they see that their voices being included in solutions or in ministry could be the witness to the world that is what they're critiquing in the church, in the way ways things have been done, and in, in patriarchy, but in, in, in lots of things. So they love seeing it, experiencing it, and having a voice. And I think as, you know, I'm a 54-year-old woman, I think I need those voices of 24-year-olds. I I need to listen to them and learn from them just as I think they need to listen to me and learn from me. So when it works and it's happening, it's one of the most exciting things mm. that I get to do is to collaboratively do ministry together and share teaching, share preaching, share writing. I think Google Docs are one of the best places that (laughs) ministry is happening right now. When we get in a Google Doc together and start editing each other and working on something together, I don't know. It's, it's of course, a younger generation that taught me how to collaborate in in there. Mm. It, it's this, I don't know, we get, we turn, we come out with a really exciting Bible study or um, something that we'll do together. Because we really got in there and collaborate. We're, we're collaborating. I love that plug for uh, Google Docs. Maybe we can get them to uh, to promote this podcast. <laughs> but you're so right. It's, it's, That's right. It's <laughs> what did we do before Google Docs? I don't even know how to how to work without them anymore. Right. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> so in this chapter, I talk about 
how in the midst of some of these terribly frustrating and painful experiences of inhospitality, mm-hmm. and particularly within you know church and religious spaces, I talk about the ways that God has shown up as hostess in my life and has invited me to her table and continually said, you will always have a space here. I would love to hear from you uh, some of the ways that you have experienced God as hostess in your life. You know, because preaching was not the table I was invited to uh, really ever or very much. I just think God invited me. God gave me this love for preaching and it has been in me since I formed thoughts. I I Mm -hmm. just loved sermons. I took notes on sermons. I thought about them. I don't even know if I pictured myself doing them because I couldn't have pictured that. But I thought about sermons long before it was normal to to think about sermons. I love God's word as a kid. I was just, I've never gotten tired of God's word. And so to me, that is God's invitation saying, come be a part of this. It's Mm -hmm. almost miraculous. You never saw a woman do this, but you trusted the spirit enough to believe you're being invited. And so how do you decline an invitation like that? I think it would be rude to decline. And this world has been unjust for women preachers or for many women preachers. And I just try to keep my eye on that invitation. Mm -hmm. And it feels like one of the strongest things I've ever experienced is that invitation from God to preach and to study and to love God's word. So I I don't know, how do we explain it other than it's just this powerful welcome to a table that, that, yeah, is unjust, but I'm listening to God and I've had community around me affirm that gift, but sometimes I just had to listen to God and remember what God's inviting me to. Hmm. I love that example in the ways that it, from this young age, inclines your ear internally to both your own longings and desires and sensibilities and how you are making your way in the world and the ways that spirit was moving within and and in the midst of and among that, because that orientation becomes essential to do everything we've described already, right? In those moments where it's like, well, this feels like the right move. This feels like the right way to teach this class or to lead my team or whatever it may be. It seemed best to the spirit and to me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. to, to go forward this way. And it requires that sort of internal orientation that isn't uh, doesn't close down to that type of external voice. But as you said, you heard those external voices affirming, yes, we see this. This is good to the mm-hmm. spirit and to us. And we, you know, we're with you in this. Um, because it does require that. And and so often, you know, I think humans in general, but in, in particular women, and then even in more particular in religious communities, women are often conditioned away from that type of trusting self. Actually, we're kind of taught to betray ourselves in that way. And so I love that God as hostess kind of busts that up from the beginning mm-hmm. and from this very early age in your life shows up in that way within you. Yeah, you know, I part of what I love about your book is that you are, I don't know, you're still getting me to think more and more about this, you know, these images of God as feminine and the language and the metaphors we use, you know, you, you know, I'm sure this is true for a lot of your readers, you push us, you push us to edges, you know, and I like that. I like being pushed to some edges. And, you know, even as I read your book, I was thinking about how I envisioned the Holy Spirit as feminine, with nurturing qualities like a mother. And I remember that a friend of mine once said to me that the Holy Spirit raised him. You know, he just said, you know, the Holy Spirit raised me. And that spoke so much to my experiences of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. raising me, guiding me, taking care of me, affirming my love for the Bible, affirming my calling. And for me, that was a feminine experience, a motherly experience. I was never alone because of the the spirit. I was not excluded because of the spirit. And I know, you know, that everyone probably didn't love the movie and the book, The Shack. But when I saw that the Holy Spirit was feminine in 
was a woman in that movie, I thought, oh my goodness, that is how I have experienced the spirit, but I didn't have images and words. And as I learned and did my studies in theology and at seminary, I learned more that the earliest Christians spoke of the Holy Spirit as feminine, Mm. uh, as a feminine figure. And the Hebrew word for spirit is nearly in all, nearly all cases, feminine. And in Aramaic, the word for spirit is feminine. Early church leaders like Origen and Jerome refer to the Holy Spirit as mother. So I think that experience of being nurtured and mothered and raised by the Holy Spirit has shaped me as a person, as a woman, as the mother I am to my children, and the motherly qualities I have and extend to others through ministry. So, you know, I I give thanks for that because it's really no one taught me to think like that or to picture the Holy Spirit like that. But I don't know, your book really got me thinking Mm -hmm. about how much I think of the Holy Spirit as feminine and, and almost pretty much always have having these what we would call feminine qualities. Yeah, sometimes it's it can stir up a new experience, you know, this this larger conversation can, but oftentimes it is just what you describe, which is actually helps me look back on past experiences and just see them afresh and go, oh, yeah, that's kind of what's always been happening, but I didn't Mm -hmm. necessarily have the language for it. I wasn't given permission to think about it that way. Mm -hmm. And so you begin to see it more fully and with a, a bit of a different lens and suddenly you see it everywhere. I know. When my friend said that, you know, the Holy Spirit raised me, it just, that was probably said 30 years ago. Mm. And it just has stayed with me. Um, I think that's true for all of us. All of us have some something of that experience. So. Mm. Yeah. So you have lived in different places around the world. Your work has mm-hmm. taken different forms. And I'd love to just ask you about a couple of those. You spent how many years living in Uganda? We were there eight years. Eight years. Okay, so eight years Mm -hmm. in Uganda and raising a family there. I'm curious, Mm -hmm. what did you learn about the idea or the experience of hospitality from the people and from your time there? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the word that comes to mind first is reciprocal. Mm -hmm. How reciprocal hospitality is. I knew it in my head that it should be reciprocal, you know, before I went, but to have that experience that we all know that we should extend hospitality and be hosts, but to receive hospitality as a guest. So, you know, Ugandans have so many assets that I learned about in there. And one of the major ones is hospitality. They taught me so much about hospitality and setting a welcoming atmosphere I showed up clueless about culture and I don't know, I was a stranger and I was, I was welcomed in and taken care of and shown how to live. And of course we invited people to our home and we hosted, but when we hosted out of that, I don't know, experience of our own neediness. And so the power, Mm -hmm. power differential between guest and host was reduced. And it was so much fun when you put yourself out there. So anyway, I think when we model, our hospitality after Jesus, which those kinds of things are how Jesus was. Jesus was both host and he was guest and he extended hospitality and he received hospitality. So I think you can just tell who is following Jesus by this hospitality and that it's reciprocal and that power is not wielded by who's hosting or who's a guest. And so, you know, that was my big life lesson. I was a young woman in my mid twenties and I was so taken in and taken care of and shown how to grow into a woman Mm. by women in Uganda. And they were so hospitable to me in every way, in every way. So the current shape of your work is as a chaplain at Pepperdine Mm -hmm. university in Malibu. Always grateful. Any chance I get to come see you out there. I know. So now you are in a, in a place where you are often host to students. You describe these experiences of being 
so often the guest in so many ways, right? The one who had mm-hmm. this need in, in Uganda and these women and these communities coming alongside you and supporting you into what the ways that you needed to, to be. Uh, and, and here you are now serving as chaplain to staff and to students out at the university. Mm-hmm. What connections do you see there between this idea of hospitality and your role as a chaplain? You know, I love uh, being a chaplain and I think that the tradition of being a chaplain is to serve the spiritual life of the person in front of you. And that may be the way that you practice your faith and it may not be the way that you practice your faith. So, you know, I'm the chaplain for Protestants and Catholics and people of other religions or people of no religion. And it's clear to my community that I'm a follower of Jesus. That's not a question, but I have tried to show up for others the way I, and I've prayed to show up for others, how I think Jesus might show up for them. So, you know, an example of that is a, some moments of grief and chaplains really show up in times of sadness and grief and care for people. So a couple of years ago, we had an international student who passed away here, um, in the Los Angeles area, and he wasn't of um, the Christian religion, and his family didn't live here, so they came from another country, and they showed up, and I had to learn how to host them and have a memorial that was appropriate for their cultural and religious experience, and I I think that hospitality of doing that the way that I would pray that Jesus would show up to do that in those moments it's it's just holy ground to walk through situations like that with people or you know while I've been the chaplain here some of our students were present at a mass shooting that's all too common in our world and one student was tragically lost and so Figuring out how to meet the needs of students and and all of them process that differently. And that means just like praying with humility that you can show up like Jesus might show up. And so, you know, this distinction of being called to be a chaplain, I think, is just to be available for everybody. And it means sometimes you don't take a side. I try to be approachable by people who might not, I might not share their same political views. I might not share their same religious views. And that is a challenging calling. But, you know, I think that's hospitable. Mm. And not taking a side sometimes might sound wishy-washy, but really I think it's subversive. This world is just so full of exclusion, drawing boundaries, but God transcends, you know, it's, it goes way beyond those boundaries and reaches across and off, offers hospitality. So they got mad at Jesus for eating with sinners or eating with others. Welcoming people is is hard work. It takes this intentionality and creativity. But that's what I see. It means to be a chaplain. Mm-hmm. Is this so? It is so goes with your chapter on hospitality and what you said about scarcity. People put up boundaries because they don't think there's enough to go around, but Jesus, Jesus brings abundance. And so I, I try to live by believing there's enough to go around for everybody. Hmm. I want to be really careful in how I say this because I don't want it to sound like, oh, look, there's, you know, redemption in your, in your suffering. Um, because you have experienced a lot of painful moments of exclusion and being left, left off the, the guest list, right. Or being mm-hmm. told mm-hmm. not only that it just wasn't, wasn't room, but actually it would be wrong for you to, to be here at this table. Right. And, and those experiences have been real and there has been suffering and pain in that. And as you describe your role as chaplain, I'm sitting here thinking about what it looks like for you to draw on your very real and embodied mm-hmm. encounters of exclusion as you seek to be a chaplain who's deeply inclusive of all in your care. 
who believes that they are not coming as empty vessels and you are here to, to write the script for everything, but rather to show up with ears open to listen, to hear what do they think? What do they know? What do they feel? What do they need and, and want? And to do that with their families in these really tender times, just really grateful for the ways that you, in the midst of that very real pain and, and trauma, even in frustration, that you've allowed it to form you into this, this hostess um, who both reflects the divine as hostess in that ways and also is recipient of that sort of divine mm -hmm. hospitality. So thank yeah. you for sharing yeah. about that with us. Yeah, you know, it's Matthew 25 when Jesus says, when you welcome strangers, you welcome me. And when you excluded strangers, you excluded me. And I, I think that is in my mind so much of the time is that these that people we come in contact with we should we, we should see them as hosting Jesus you know I was a naked and you gave me clothing I was sick and you took care of me I was in prison and you visited me I was you know I that this is Jesus and Jesus is in all these people. So I seek to do, you know, my job as a chaplain and to define being a chaplain like that with the fear and trembling that it is subversive to host mm -hmm. in that way. Mm -hmm. it, it is, it is not uh, something you can take lightly. Mm -hmm. Friend, thank you for this conversation. It's been so lovely and I love you. Thank you, Mallory. I love you too. Thanks for writing your book. <laughs> you've enjoyed conversations you've heard on in the waves you can purchase a copy of my book god is wherever you get your books you can also be part of our final episode where i will engage questions that listeners have about the book and the conversations that we've shared here so submit your questions via email to in the waves podcast at gmail.com and let's keep the conversation going to stay up to date on my writing and events, be sure to visit my website, MalloryWyckoff.com, and subscribe to my newsletter. You can also follow me on social media at Mallory Wyckoff. This podcast was produced by the fabulous Mariah Keener. Thanks for listening.